Hey, we're going to continue on with the Gospel of Mark, preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Two weeks ago, Pastor Paul preached from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, um, and he talked about, from the section of Scripture, about Jesus blessing some little children after the disciples had tried to stop those little children from coming to Jesus. And by the way, I listened to a sermon he preached on our website. If you don't do that when you miss, I encourage you to do it. Um, you just go to portviewchurch.com. There's an easy thing right there you click on that says podcast. You go to podcast. You click on the sermon you want. and it, You can listen to it on your computer. You can download it onto your, onto your iPod or whatever else if you want. Um, and I listened to pastors, Pastor Paul's sermon, and it was excellent. Even though he's on vacation, which I never try to bug anybody on vacation, I sent him a text message, and I said, you preached a great message. And so he preached two weeks ago from the Gospel of Mark about Jesus blessing these little children. And what we found in that story, and I'm using this as an introduction to today, in that story, we found that Jesus said something really interesting to the disciples. He said this, he says, getting into the kingdom of God or as we would kind of use the terminology from Scripture, getting saved, they're the same thing, entering, leaving the kingdom of darkness, and coming into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, which is coming to Christ through salvation, getting saved. He said that to do that, he said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, receive the kingdom or come into the kingdom of God, like a child, as he was holding this little child in his hands, like a child will not enter it at all. In other words, he said, unless you're childlike, you can't even get saved, you can't come into the kingdom. And what Jesus was doing is he was making it very clear that entrance into his kingdom comes through total dependence on Jesus as Savior. That's the point he was trying to make there. He said, it's not about you, it's all about me. You need to come to me like a little child and be totally dependent upon me as Savior. That just as a little child is totally dependent on his parents or other people um, all the time for all they have, that we must completely place our dependence on Jesus, the Son of God, for entrance into His kingdom, for coming to salvation and staying in His kingdom, that our entrance, our salvation, and our walk with God is not through self-effort. It's through dependence. That's the message that Jesus was laying the foundation for um, in that text that Pastor Paul preached about. Now, in the section of Scripture that we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to expand that teaching. That's why I had to lay the foundation. He's going to expand it. He's going to talk about it some more. But he's he's going to talk about our need for a total dependence on God for salvation, and he's going to add another point, point to it. He's going to also talk about something that can get in the way of our entrance into the kingdom and our walking continually in the kingdom. And so with that foundation, grab your Bible, open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, We're going to look at the sections, the verses just following where Pastor Paul preached. We're going to start in verse 17. We're going to read a story that a lot of you are familiar with. Who's ever heard the story entitled, The Rich Young Ruler? You've heard that from the Scriptures. It's in all the Gospels, um, or in three of the Gospels. And um, we're going to look at that story today because it's a continuation on of what Jesus talked about of this total dependence and obstacles to getting the kingdom. So starting in verse 17 of Mark chapter 10, it says this, And he, being Jesus, he was setting out on a journey, and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, 
I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Look at the exclamation point at the end. Verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Contrary to the message that we hear preached so much today. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to them, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So Jesus starts talking to this young man who runs up before him and says, how do I inherit eternal life? The question we need to start with today when we want to figure out what Jesus is talking about here is, what do we know about this guy? What do we know about this guy that Jesus is talking to here about how to find eternal life, this guy we know as the rich young ruler? Well, what we know is that he is exactly the opposite of a helpless, dependent baby. He just said, unless you become like a baby, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And there, all of a sudden, not by coincidence, this man runs up to Jesus on the road, falls on his feet, asks him, how do I, enter, how do I inherit eternal life? And we find out about him through, through, through this gospel and the other gospels that he's exactly the opposite of a helpless, dependent baby. In the gospel of Matthew, about this man, it mentions that he had great wealth. And in the gospel of Luke, it says, it identifies him as a ruler. And that's why it's called here the rich young ruler, even though he's not called the ruler in the Gospel of Mark, because Luke identifies him as a ruler. So we know from the Gospels that he is both affluent and he's powerful. And I, I really think we can also see from the Gospel of Mark's account here that this guy is not only affluent and powerful, but he's a very self-assured young man who knew what he wanted and went after what he wanted. Because what we see is he wanted to know, how do I find eternal life? Nobody else on the road is running up to Jesus, falling at their feet and saying, Master, tell me how, how this is. Good teacher, how do I find it? But he, being this very uh, self-assured young man, pushes through the crowd, comes before Jesus and says, I need an answer to my greatest question. How do I find eternal life? I think if we were to give him a title today and the kind of person he is, we would say that this guy is an achiever. He's rich, he's young, he's fluent, and he's, and, and, and he's self-assured. He's an achiever. And not only is he an achiever, but we see from the story here that he's also a really good guy. Because he had done his best to serve God from his youth. All the things that we look at is this guy's got it all going on. It says he followed the rules. 
Jesus said, you know what to do. Don't murder. Don't, don't uh, commit adultery. Don't steal. And he said, I've kept all these things from the time I was a youth. He's probably meaning from the time as a Jewish boy he was bar mitzvahed at 13. He said, I've kept these things from my youth. You know, and I think he's really a lot like a lot of us in our communities today. I think he'd fit in great in Ozaki County. He's a hardworking young man. He's an honorable guy who's making his mark on the world and he's climbing the ladder. I think, he's a, I think he'd fit right in, in our community. He'd fit right in most of our churches. And he comes to Jesus and he does, to show his intelligence, he comes to Jesus and he asks, asks the most important question any person on the planet could ever ask anybody. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? You see, friends, that's the one and only question that ultimately matters in this life. What's going to happen in the end? Because no matter where your path takes you in life, no matter how big your pile of stuff is, no matter how small your pile of stuff is, no matter how well your name is known by other people, the day you die, you still die. You know, we did a funeral here this week for Mike Gahan's sister. The only question that really mattered to anybody in that room is, how do I find eternal life? What should I do to inherit eternal life? Because it's the end of every single person on the planet. See, other questions give us maybe some really, some really good information. They're significant for our lives. But the question that this guy asks is a question that all people need to come to grips with. No matter who you are, what stage of life you're at. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Because we are all going to someday die. So it shows this guy, he had an understanding about life. He's a smart guy. He's doing it right. But Jesus answers him in a way that is absolutely shocking to this young man. And if we accept it as Jesus taught it, and, and I think maybe some of us have misunderstood it, so hang on till the end to hear what, we have to, what I have to say about it to understand what he's really saying. But I think if we accept it, though, as Jesus said it, we're going to find out it can be just as shocking to us as it was to that guy and to the disciples on that day. You see, at first, Jesus' answer seemed just fine. How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus does what we all like to do because we can all control it. He says, well, keep the rules. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents. He just goes through the Ten Commandments and says, do these things that are the rules that you can work hard to accomplish. And he says, those are the things that I've done from my youth. And friends, I think those are the things that most of us in our lives strive to do all the times too. But then Jesus shocks this guy. Matter of fact, Jesus shocks the disciples because it says the disciples were amazed two times. They're like, this can't be. And they question, how can it be what you're saying next? He looks at this guy who's a competent, a well-accomplished, good guy, keeping the rules. And he looks at him in the face and he says, one thing you lack. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow after me. It's all about following him. That's what salvation comes through. He's not saying you can buy salvation. He's saying, sell all you have, store up treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. That's what this relationship is all about. Jesus said that to this young man, you lack one thing. Basically, it's this. Your stuff is standing between you and a genuine relationship with Jesus. Your stuff is keeping you from walking with Jesus and keeping you from an ability to continue to walk with Jesus. Your possessions are keeping you out of the kingdom of God, so sell it all and give it all away. And the story says this, that when this young man heard this, 
He didn't say, oh good, I know the next thing to do. I've been keeping these rules, now I'm going to keep that one. It says rather, his face, his countenance fell. It says he was saddened because he owned a lot and he walked away from Jesus. You see, when it came down to it, he said he wanted to walk with Christ. But when it came down to it, if he had to choose between his stuff and between the kingdom of God, he chose his stuff. And so when Jesus put the requirement out there, he walked away. Friends, here's the key to this that you need to understand. You see, Jesus understood something about this young man, and he understands something about all of us at times in our lives, and maybe some of us right now. He understood this about the guy. He had an idol. He had an idol in his life. He had something that he worshipped more than he worshipped God. That's what an idol is. It's something that we set up in some fashion, and we worship it. How do we worship it? Does it mean we bow to it? I don't think he ever bowed to his money. I don't think he bowed to his properties. But he put it in first place. That's how you bow to it. And this man, Jesus identifies, had an idol. He had something that he worshipped and he loved more than God. He loved his money and his possessions more than God. And the way we can prove that is that when it came to a time when he had to choose between which one would he follow, he chose his possessions over Jesus. Jesus said, come follow me. And he said, I can't. I can't give all this stuff up. But Jesus wasn't being mean. Jesus was being helpful. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says something. If you read over it, I try to emphasize it when I read it, read I read it, but we can look right over it. It says Jesus said this because he felt love for him. This man says he likes, Jesus likes the guy. He's impressed by him. He sees he's been working hard. But Jesus looks in his life and he understands there's something amiss. He's got an idol. And Jesus, out of love, when he sees this, said to him, you lack one thing. Get rid of the idol. Sell it all. You see, because Jesus loved him, because Jesus loves us, he had to identify the thing within him that really was in first place in his heart. Jesus was able to, to put his finger in this guy's entire life, scope of his whole life, place his finger on the one thing that was the idol. The Spirit of God still does that today. He places his finger on the one thing in our life and says, you say you want to follow after me, but what about that? You know, for this young man, his real God, his real first love was his money and his possessions. For other people, it can be other things. It can be power. It can be control. It can be recognition. I've got to be known. It can be an addiction. All kinds of things that really are the first place thing that we serve in our lives. And whatever it is, Jesus is letting us know that we can't have two gods. We can't have Him as Savior and Lord, Lord meaning the one we follow, the one we put as first place, and have these other idols in our lives that are really the gods that we serve. And listen, church, out of love, God will ask you, to choose between him and your idol. I'll never forget the day. You guys know something about me. I love the outdoors, love the hunt and fish. I'll never forget the day that I felt God tell me, give up all your hunting and fishing. And for seven years, I never picked up a fishing rod, never picked up a gun or a bow. I never, I never hunted one day because I felt God say this. He said, sacrifice your idol. Sacrifice your Isaac. It's become a God in your life. I took all my vacations. It's all I did. And it's all I cared about. And God said, give it up. 
And I had to make a choice like this young man did. And you know what? You could choose to hang your head in sadness and say, I just can't do that. Or you could say, okay, God, I'll give it up. There's a point in my time, seven years later, when I asked God, can I do it again? Because he was tempting me way too much. He had me move to Marquette, Michigan and plant the church. And I'm like, really, God? <laughs> I'm living up here and I can't hunt and fish. And I really felt like the Lord said, go ahead and do it. Keep it in check. And I have ever since kept it in check. I could take it or leave it. See, out of love, God will ask you to choose between your idol and him. If something has taken first place in your life, God will demand that you give it up. And if you don't, he'll either let you flounder or he'll take it out of your life. And I want to tell you something, friends. The gospel, what we're reading here, isn't easy believism. The world is filled with the gospel message that says it costs you nothing to serve Jesus. That is not the gospel that Jesus preached. It will cost you everything to serve Jesus, but you will gain eternal life and everything else that God has to offer. As Pastor Pete talked about, you'll gain real freedom. Where before you had, at best, second best. You get the best when you come to Christ and you give it all. But what happens so often is we try to keep it and add Jesus on top. And the fact of the matter is it doesn't work that way. This is not easy believism. It costs to follow Jesus. The payoff is infinitely greater than what you give up. And that's what he's trying to say to Peter at the end. When G Peter says, what about us? We gave it all up to follow you. And Jesus stops him right in his tracks and says, no, you didn't give up anything. He said, yeah, you gave some stuff up, but what I gave you back is a hundred times more. That's what he wants us to know. And what and I want all of us to understand today that the idol that Jesus points out in this text and the idol that is most often pointed out in the New Testament that we wrestle with the most, I think especially in North America and especially in a prosperous area like this, the main idol that God always points out, and he points it out because it's the most common. It's not the only one. There's all kinds of things that could be idols. But the main one that he points out the most in the New Testament is the idol of serving money and possessions. And there's a reason for it. It's because it's simple. God knows the heart of man. And he knows our propensity towards accumulating money and possessions because it gives us security. And he knows it's a problem. Because when we amass a lot of it, we are prone to trust in ourselves. We're prone to trust in our money rather than trusting in God. Rather than having what he said we need to have to enter the kingdom. A childlike dependence on God for everything in our lives. That's what this whole message is about. Having a childlike dependence on God saying, I am nothing without you. I'm solely dependent on you. It's not about self-effort. It's not about being the rich young ruler who kept all the rules. It's about understanding I need God every day. That's all I can depend on. And when we amass a lot, some people can't handle it. And when they amass a lot, they begin to trust in themselves and trust in their money rather than trusting in God. And it, it, it goes, they, they stray from having a God-like dependence on God for everything in their lives. That very quality that Jesus said we need to have in order to enter his kingdom. That's what he's talking about here. You see, Jesus actually sees, and, I, and this is going to be, this is hard for us North Americans to handle, but this is actually, absolutely what the Bible teaches. Jesus actually sees riches as an obstacle to both salvation and discipleship. Because they can, they don't have to, but they can give a false sense of security. And scripture says they demand a loyalty of a person's heart. 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says this, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's what the scriptures teach. It doesn't say you can't have them both. It says you can't serve them both. That's why Jesus said what he did to the disciples that day about it being more difficult for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He was was letting us know that great riches make one's spiritual life more difficult than having less riches. See, wealth is a great challenge to spiritual life because great wealth can lure a person into self-dependence instead of God-dependence. So this is simply what I say. Watch out what you wish for because you may not be able to handle great wealth. As a matter of fact, I think many people cannot handle great wealth, even though there's a, a pseudo-gospel preached especially in the 80s in America that says God's wealth, wealth is a sign of God's blessing. I'd say this, great wealth often destroys people. Just look at everybody who wins the lottery. They destroy, they're destroyed. You could gain the world and lose your souls, what the scripture says. That's why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave this warning. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal and where the stock market doesn't crash and make you go crazy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, friends, Jesus wants our heart to be with him in first place. Not a first place being our 401k or our IRA or whatever else, our big house and our beautiful boats and, our, and whatever else. Those things can be idols that steal first place in our hearts. So, here's the question for us. Right here, 2012, Port View Church, people of Ozaki County, Sheboygan County, Washington County, people who live right here. What do we as Americans, living in the wealthiest country in the world, do about this? Do we sell everything, live in a tent, and ride horses to work, and take all the money we get and give it all away to the poor? Is that what Jesus is saying here? It's not what he's saying. I met a missionary recently who, when he got saved, um, he was driving his pastor crazy, and he wanted to do some ministry, and the pastor said, he was frustrated, he said, just read the Bible and do what it says. And so he came to the section... He said, oh, I'm supposed to sell everything. And he sold everything and, and he went off into missions. And actually, he's lived that life forever. But he was saying, you know what, that's not, God didn't tell everybody to do that. God's not saying, sell all you have, live in a tent, and ride, your, ride a horse to work. Rather, this is what he's saying. We need to recognize the danger of affluence. We need to recognize it as a danger. And we live in a, in a country that says it's exactly the opposite. But the scriptures, if you are honest and you read the scriptures about finances, it doesn't ever say finances are bad because they're not. It says recognize the danger of affluence and be on guard against money becoming your God. Do not let money become the God of your life. And how we do this is we simply obey the scriptures in regards to finance. We do what we just read earlier. We store up our riches in heaven by being generous. Being generous breaks money's ability to control you. When you recognize that God has blessed you, not so you can build bigger barns and store more stuff. That's the Bible story about it. 
He said there was a foolish man who, because he was so blessed, just kept building bigger barns and storing more. He says, hey, i got enough forever. And God says, you're a fool. Tonight your soul will be required of you. And he died. He says, you're not rich towards God. You might have a lot of stuff. Garages full of toys. Barns full of whatever. But he says, listen, be generous. Being generous breaks money's ability to control you and become a God in your life. Also obey the scriptures here. 1 Timothy says this about money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19 should be just written on the doors of our houses. It says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. And friends, I know we have financial, we're going through a financially hard time in our country. But we do understand that we have more than anybody else on the planet, right? We do understand that. And the reason we're having problems for the most part is because we, we bought and got an account, and accumulated more than we could afford. We got there through borrowing. That's, how, that's why we're in trouble as a nation and as individuals. But compared to the rest of the world, we really have, we're rich. We're the richest of the world. Scripture says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. And that's what happens. We become conceited thinking, look, I'm so great, I've got so much. And we forget about God. We say, I'm God and you're not. Do not be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, and they are uncertain. Stock markets crash. I have a friend who recently was banking. He was convinced Obamacare was going to be shot down. This is what he said. Obamacare is going down. Stock markets going up 1,000 points in one week because business owners are going to be happy. And my 401k is going to do this. All he's been hoping on. I saw him the day after Obamacare was shot down. His, his chin was so low, you know, he could have been a street sweeper. You know, because he's just like, oh man, it didn't happen. I said to him in the beginning, we told me. I said, what happens if it's not, it doesn't get shot down and the stock market goes down? Are you putting your hope in your stock, in your 401k? He says, fix, do not fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but fix your hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. We're supposed to enjoy the things God has given. There's nothing wrong with enjoying nice stuff. Instruct them to do good, those who have great riches, he says. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future in heaven, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. He says, listen, real life's not in having a bunch of stuff. Real life is storing up treasures in heaven, using what God gave you to bless people around you. So what do we do? Friends, this is the way it is. Go like this with your hands. Put your hands out in front of you like this. Some of you, it's hard for you to do, right? Because no one's going to tell you what to do. Hold on to everything loosely. That's how we hold on to things, the things God's given us. We hold on to them loosely. We don't grip them like this. We hold on to things loosely. Using what is entrusted to us to do good. That's the key. Hold on to everything loosely with open hands. Using what God puts in your hand to do good. Then money won't become an idol. And you can have piles of it. And it won't become an idol in your life. And God won't require you to give it up. That's what happened with this young, young ruler. It was an idol and God said, I can't allow you to have an idol because the idol will keep you out of my kingdom. So he put his finger right on that thing in his life that was an idol and says, get rid of it because it's going to cost you in the end because he was asking the ultimate question, how do I gain eternal life? And he says, you can't have it because you have another God. Friend, 
the greatest gift God could ever give us is getting us to identify other gods so we can get rid of them. I remember in a church service one time, I made some comment about basically the Packers not being God. And somebody shouted out, yes, yes, they are. And I thought, I wanted to stop and say, you just don't get it. If Jesus was here, he'd put his finger right there. And he'd say, but one thing you lack, stop watching the Packers. Whatever it is in your life, anything can become a God. And if we don't hold on to it loosely, it'll become an idol in our lives and God will demand that we get rid of it instead of allowing us to use it in a blessed way in our lives because he loves us too much to see us condemned. Friend, I want to end our time together by having you look at a chart. We're going to take a couple minutes, five or ten minutes to look at it. We're plenty early. To look at a chart that I put in your bulletin. You see these? All of you got a bulletin. If you didn't get them, there's a bunch of them. You can grab one on the way out. They're on the, they should be on the Welcome Center. This yellow, little yellow chart. This thing is titled, The Four Common Stewardship Views Contrasted. And I'd say the four common views that people have. Stewardship means how you use what God has given you. Views, views that are contrasted. These are the four common views that people in the church world have. And the reason I wanted to not just talk about it, but I wanted to give it to you, and I made it, we made it small enough so you can stick it in your Bible or put it on your refrigerator, and you're not going to throw it away, is because what I hope is going to happen here is you're going to look at this, and I'm going to talk through it briefly, and you're going to look at it, and you're going to identify yourself in the chart. And you're going to see if you're right or you're wrong And it's going to help you adopt a right view. And if you're off track, get on the right track. Because this is God's way of helping you. It's as if God was standing here today, and you're the rich young ruler, and he wants to put his finger on you and say, but one thing you lack is helping us see if we have a right view towards finances. So let me just talk about it. Four common stewardship views. There's four of them that operate in the church all the time. All four of these are represented in this congregation right now, and only one of them is right. And all four claim to be biblical. But three are really a twisting of the scriptures. They really are. They're a twisting of, of orthodox, biblical Christianity. They're fueled generally by human greed or human need to control. First one is poverty theology. Poverty theology basically views this, that all things are bad. Money's bad, things are bad. And they look at the text we looked at today. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. Money's bad. Non-materialistic, disdain for possessions, money's a curse. You buy the lowest quality, everything that you have. You sell everything, you give it all away, you're a rejecter of the world, and you're just preoccupied with your daily needs. But there's a positive side of that. The people who like that tend to be carefree. They're kind of like, we don't care about things of the world. But they don't understand that, that, that you know what? You can't operate a church without money. You know what it takes to reach lost people? Money. When I was in Cambodia, I had to raise a ridiculous amount of money to be a missionary. $8,400 a month and of 200000 in cash I needed to get over to Cambodia. Because it's so expensive. Because they rob you blind. They embezzle all your money because you're a foreigner. And that was the budget that was set for me. And that's why I had raised in 15 months. This church was one of the churches that helped me raise that. Went over there and it drove me nuts because I am a conservative. I pinch every penny. I know everything goes. And it just drove me nuts. And finally I got there and the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me and said, Mark, how much are those people worth to me? And he simply said, Mark, this is what it costs to reach lost people in Cambodia. And I recognized God didn't care about money. He cared about lost people. If you have a, if you have a poverty mentality, theology, you can't ever do anything great because great things in this world are, are fueled by God, but God uses resources to do them. God doesn't hate money. 
He created this system that we have in this world. So poverty theology might be carefree for you, but generally doesn't affect the world very great. So that's why it's got limitations. The next one. Who was, a, who was a believer back in the 80s? Who was serving Jesus in the 80s? The Copeland and Hagen generation. Um, that's this one, and I'm telling you, it's not the gospel at all. Pastor Bruce and I had a professor who's very well known. Uh, matter of fact, if you read the um, uh, New, Life, New Life Bible, he's one of the contributors, Dr. Doug Ose. Um, he was both of our professors, a brilliant man, one of the leading theologians in the Assemblies of God. He referred to this as Copen, Chew a Little Copenhagen. Copeland Hagen. They're the two main guys that were preaching this theology. Chew on a little Copenhagen. And basically, basically this theology simply says prosperity is the reward of the righteous. So you know what? They'd say this all the time. You're a kid of the king. Praise God, you're a kid of the king. You ought to live like royalty. And so you know what they would do? They'd go down and they would anoint Cadillacs. No, it was Lincoln Town Cars back then. Anoint Lincoln Town Cars and the car lot. In Jesus' name, give me the town car. You know what? In, in a... Tulsa, Oklahoma, one car dealer that I knew of, because I used to live in Springfield, Missouri, would not sell a Lincoln Town car to a minister because so many claimed it and defaulted on their payments because it's prosperity theology. i got to look like I'm rich because I'm rich. It proves I'm a kid of the king. You want to understand something? Protestant Christianity has blown this over and over and over through church history. Roman Catholicism has a much better grasp on this. They understand, they talk about their priest taking a vow of poverty. Because they look at something positive about not being entangled in the world. Protestant Christianity has blown this over and over and over through the generations. And the last little upsurge was back in the 80s. When it was all about being rich and, and it's a reward, finances are a reward for walking with God. And so everything's top quality. You wouldn't be caught dead driving a Volkswagen Beetle like I did. You needed to buy a Lincoln Town car. And the verse is, ask, seek not, brother. Anything you ask for, you'll get. If you have enough faith, you'll receive. Believe and receive. Seed faith. So the pastor stands up in church and says, you know you're having needs today? Just write out a check for an extra $100. God will give you 1000 back. And they can take a little verse of the Scripture and kind of twist it and say that's what it means. That's not what it means in Scripture. God does bless you as you get. And I do believe in the point of seed faith that God says, you take the first step. You be... You be, you be um, Sure, to follow my rules and regulations about money, and I'll bless your socks off. I believe what Pastor Mitch said today. You tithe, you give the first 10% of everything you own to God. First fruits, not last fruits, first fruits, and He will bless you. And then, even when you're doing that, He's going to say at times, I want you to give more by His Spirit. He's going to encourage you, go give to this thing. And you do it. And you know what? He blesses you for it. But in that, in that view, you're the owner of everything. Money is your preoccupation. It's all about greed, and you're driven to get more. And I, I was saved in that. I was a new Christian in that stuff. And I got so tired of it, I went from that extreme over to the poverty theology. And I lived the poverty theology for a lot of years. I thought that was godly because I was rebelling against a prosperity doctrine. I ended up with the fourth one, but we're going to look at the third one first. The third one is the one that's the most commonly practiced theology. I'm going to say this without looking at anybody. It's the one that most people in this church live and most people in, our, in the church world live. It's not biblical. Basically, it's this. The pursuit of household possessions and family pleasure is acceptable. So we run off. We're, we're much more committed to pleasure than we are to the kingdom of God. We're committed to pleasure. We say, oh, I'm saved, but I don't have to go to church. I don't have to do these things. It's all about pleasure. That things are a right. I have a right, and it's very American. Americans say, I have my rights, so I have a right to have whatever I have. I worked hard for that. What do you mean? I worked. I got the education. 
I, I got the good job. I worked hard. I work overtime. I ought to be able to have it. Instead of recognizing the only reason that you were able to get the job because you got the education is because you were raised where you were raised and God gave you the gifts that you were given. So if you didn't have those gifts that God gave you, you never could have got the education you needed to get the job that you have. And the very strength you have in your body is only a gift from God anyways. And so it's all because God gave it to you as a gift. You didn't earn it. And that's the reality is, it's not a right, it's a privilege. And so, but it is about making, it's about quantity. I got to have build bigger barns, I got to have bigger garages, I got so much stuff, I can't store it all. And, they, and the verse they'll talk about all the time. And we talk about it, it's not a wrong verse. Worse than an infidel is the one who doesn't care for his own family. They say, you know what, get off welfare and get a job. That's what they say. It's all about work hard, do it yourself, but it's very individualistic. It's very, it's very me self-centered and they get almost everything they got through credit and borrowing. So therefore, when the church world, when the economic world collapsed, the church world suffered. The church world should never have suffered in this economic collapse. We have churches everywhere across this nation that pastor salaries are being cut. Churches are going, never before a church has gone into foreclosure. Churches are going into foreclosure, firing staff. It's happening everywhere in this nation. It's because everybody in the church borrowed so much money so they could have so much more stuff instead of following the biblical rules of saying a borrower is slave to a lender. Slave to the lender. It's not that you can never borrow, but there's good borrowing, there's bad borrowing, and the church world um, just says, you know, charge it. Remember the Flintstones? Wilma and Betty? Remember how they go shopping? Remember them? Da-da-da-da-da! Charge it! Remember that? Anybody else remember the Flintstones? That's how our whole world lives. See? That, that's, that was, that's the commonly practiced theology in the church world today. You're an accumulator. It's all about comfort and convenience, and you're totally entangled in the things of the world. And this is how I see it happening all the time. People over and over and over come to the World Missions Department, and they say, I feel called of God in the World Ministries, in the World Missions. And you know what the World Missions Board does? The very first question they ask, how much debt do you have? They don't even ask you if you're saved. They don't even ask you if you're born again. They say, how much debt do you have? And if you say X amount, they say, sorry, pay it off and come back when you're done in 10 years. Because you can't have debt and go to missions. First question I was asked when Suzanne and I were asked to go plant the church in Marquette, Michigan by this district, by our leadership. They never asked me if I was born again. They didn't ask me if I, was, if I even believed in any doctrines. They said, how much school debt do you have? I said, zero. I, and they said, how much debt do you have? And I said, zero. And Suzanne said, we were brand new married a couple years. And she goes, we have some debt? And I said, we do? <laughs> I was like shocked. I mean, she knocked me out of my chair. I said, we do? She goes, oh yeah, we have about $100 on our credit card. And see, we've had a credit card since I was 18 years old, never paid one penny of interest. But I use a credit card all the time. Get it? Pay it off every month. Get it? Pay it off. What's the rule, Josh? If you don't have the money, you can't afford to use a credit card, right? Unless the money's in the bank, you can't afford the credit card. Have you heard that how many times? A million. Okay, there you go. It's a million and one now. So therefore, you're through for your first year of college. You're debt-free. You've got $2,000 in the bank. Your car's paid for. Your motorcycle's paid for. And, and you're going to year two. Why? Because you've never borrowed money. And your dad's not rich. And it all came through you. So, but that's the commonly practiced theology. Now, here's the real theology. Here's the biblical theology. Possessions are a trust given by God in various, varying proportions to us. Do you understand something? God loves some of you so much, he'll never give you a lot of money, no matter how much you pray for it. You know why? He knows you'll be like the rich young ruler, and it will stand between you and heaven. He loves you way too much. He loves you way too much to give you something that would keep you from a walk with him. We need to understand, the stewardship theology understands that everything I have, if I take, you take your checkbook out, and on top of it it says, Mark and Suzanne Larson, it really should say, God. 
has lent it to Mark and Suzanne Larson. Because it's all God's, 100%. Your house is God's. One of the greatest ways I ever saw this expressed one time is we were brand new at ministry and we needed to go see Suzanne's mom and we're living in the UP and we had no money. We had to see her mom down in Tennessee and we literally, our car was a piece of junk. We couldn't make it. And somebody said to us, would you like to borrow my car to drive to Tennessee? And we was like, oh, we can't do that. And the lady looked at us and she goes, what do you mean? It's God's, it's not mine. And she really meant it. And we said, Woohoo, give us the car. <laughs> you know? And we learned that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it is. That it's all, whether it's your car, your house, your bank account, your job, your kids, it's all God's. He entrusts it to you and He, and he wants you to manage it for Him. So when we are going to make a decision to buy or spend, this is what we say about everything. God, it's yours. Would you want us to buy this? Sometimes He says buy it. It's all right to enjoy stuff. Sometimes He says don't do that. Because you know what? So-and-so has a need. Give it to that person instead. You don't need another one of these or a bigger one of those. He says, instead, that person's in need. Give it to that person. And so money and possessions are given to us by God, and He trusts us to use it for Him. They're a privilege. And so we use them in the wisest fashion. And the text that illustrates the most, the parable of talents. One person was given one, one was given five, one was given ten, and we're supposed to use them for the glory of God. That's all His anyways. And someday we're given an account on how we use them for His glory. What's the needs are met by faithfully using and giving from what you have received. And here's the word you need to understand. You're a steward. I know we don't understand that word a lot, steward. better word for us in our culture is you're a manager. You manage God's stuff. It's not yours. Everything that's got your name written on it, you understand it's all His, and you're just to manage that for His glory, and you're preoccupied with making wise decisions, and you're faithful. That's the biblical view of money. That's what the rich young ruler didn't get. That's what God wants us to get. So take this little sheet, stick it in your Bible, put it on your refrigerator, and ask yourself a question. Am I really living according to biblical theology of stewardship? You see, friend... We need God to help us to not have anything else other than Him in first place in our lives. He gave that rich young ruler a blessing because he pointed out his problem. Church history says the rich young ruler later came back to serve Jesus. Some people think he actually became one of the great leaders of the church. We don't know that for sure. But church history says he understood i got to give it up and he sold it all and he followed Jesus. Now God's not going to necessarily ask you to give it up unless you're greedy unless it's your God. And then he'll say, I love you too much, sell it all, live in a box, <laughs> go to heaven. But for, we don't have to do that if we understand we're simply stewards of God's stuff. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, help us to understand if we are allowing anything in our lives to become our God if anything in our lives is taking a position higher than it ought to. God, whether it be resources, and we see from Scripture, you show that's the most common, that we do the things of the world, money and possessions become our God, and it's so easy to understand because then we're self-sufficient, we don't have to be be dependent on you. We can be like the rich young ruler who said, I've done it all, I've followed all the rules. It was all about self-ability to do it. Instead of understanding, you've got to be like a child and say, I need you, God. Giving up pride and saying, God, in humility, I understand that I'm a sinner. 
I understand that I'm in debt to you and I need to be forgiven. I need the payment paid for my sin. And God, I need to live then every day of my life with an understanding that it's all about you. I live in humble submission to you. And I simply ask about everything you've entrusted to me. God, what do you want me to do today? Because it's all yours. So God, help our view of money to reveal to us as individuals where our hearts really are. And God, if we look at this chart and we go, man, I'm not very comfortable because I recognize that I really live according to one of the other theologies. Then God, by your grace and your love, do what you did to that young man. Offer us right now a chance to change.